Am I Really a Christian? That is the title of a book that encourages professing Christians to examine themselves to ensure that they are in the faith. This book, Am I Really a Christian?, tells us in many ways how we know we are not Christians. And these are, of course, titles from the book. One of the titles says, you're not a Christian just because you say you are. Another title or another chapter. You're not a Christian if you haven't been born again. Still, another chapter. You're not a Christian just because you like Jesus. And another chapter. You're not a Christian if you enjoy sin. All of us, at some point, must be determine whether or not we are Christians. Because what is at stake is our eternal destiny. Years ago, while we were pastoring another church, one of the elders' wives said to us that if you keep telling yourself you are a Christian for a long time, eventually you'll believe it and find you're a Christian. And so it's a, it's a matter of concern then that we know that we are truly born again, that we are truly converted to the people of God. And one of the ways we know how we stand before God and whether we are Christians is by turning to the Scriptures, which is the means by which we know whether or not we are Christians. And in the epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians in the first epistle, we find there evidence of those who are truly converted people of God. We find this in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. We know from Acts 17 that the Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, traveled from Philippi to Thessalonica. And when he came, he came to a city that was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. And we know that the Apostle Paul preached in this city of Thessalonica for three weeks. And during the course of his proclaiming of the word of God, there were people who were converted, Jews who were converted, because he went into the synagogue and he reasoned with those who were there. We also know that there were God-fearing Greeks, Jews who had been, or Greeks who had been converted to Judaism, who were also converted. And the chapter tells us that there were prominent women in Thessalonica who became Christians. But we also know from the historical account of Luke that shortly after the church had been formed in Thessalonica, there were Jews who were opposed to these, this fledgling church. And in fact, they raised a mob, a riot broke out, in which they were charging the apostles and their, and their companions with sedition, with preaching that there was another king apart from Caesar. This is a capital offense. And so the brethren there had the apostle Paul and his entourage leave Thessalonica. And sometime afterwards, the apostle Paul writes to this church to encourage it because they were suffering 
great persecution. There were also doctrinal issues which were of concern to the Apostle Paul, and so he addresses them in this epistle. But here in the opening chapter, the Apostle Paul mentions in this prayer report, because he begins chapter 1 with a report of his prayer for them. He talks about how he gives thanks to God for their faith and their love and their hope, which are themselves signs of conversion. He recounts how they receive the word of God in verse 6, in much affliction. And he tells them that they have become examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia of those who were true believers because of their fervent evangelistic zeal. And what the Apostle Paul does in verses 9 and 10, where we want to anchor then ourselves today, the Apostle Paul tells them that the report of them has gone forth everywhere. And it was reported by the unbelievers that the Apostle Paul had received an abundant welcome by the Thessalonians. And not only that, but that these people were converted. It is in verses 9 and 10 that we see three main statements regarding the nature of true conversion that we wish to flesh out here in your hearing. First of all, then he tells them, for they themselves, referring to the report that came from unbelievers and outsiders in Macedonia and Archaea, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to await for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What then is genuine conversion? I'm going to suggest to you that there are three features of a converted person, a converted life, that are revealed here in verses 9 and 10. We're not indicating that these are all that can be said of people who are converted. But these are three pivotal signs, pivotal marks of those who are truly converted. Let me begin then by arguing first that true conversion involves a radical and permanent change in one's spiritual and moral direction. Genuine conversion involves this radical and permanent change in one's spiritual and moral direction. Paul says, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The Apostle Paul here describes them as converted people. And he uses the term turn or epistrepho to refer to their conversion. This term, turn, is a rare turn in Pauline, term in Pauline's writing because we only find it appearing three times. Once here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, we find it where he uses in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16, where he's speaking about the superiority of the, of the new covenant over the Mosaic covenant, where he argues in 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 3 that under the old covenant, under Moses, there was still a veil over the eyes of God's people. That they were still, in some sense, in darkness. And he says then in 2 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Nevertheless, when one turns, epistrepho, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken. True 
revelation and final revelation is given in Jesus Christ. He also uses epistrephal to turn in Galatians chapter 4 verse 9 where he says nevertheless or rather when he says but now after you have known God or rather are known by God how is it that you turn away a turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage and he's arguing here that having been saved by grace the grace of God they should not turn then to the law of God epistrephal then means literally to turn and in a religious context, it signifies a turn or a change in one's spiritual direction and in one's moral conduct. Generally, in theological terms, at least in systematic theological categories, the term conversion consists of two facets, has two parts. There is in conversion what we call repentance, which is literally a turning to God. And there is faith. So conversion consists of both repentance and faith. And here, when the term is used, epistrepha, it literally refers to a turn, to the repentance. Now, the, the Greek uses a number of terms for repentance. It uses a term metanoia. Metanoia means a change in mind. That the converted person, a person who becomes a Christian, must first of all have a change of mind, a change in their thinking. They must view God differently. Instead of seeing God as hostile or viewing him as irrelevant, they must view him as a gracious God, as a kind and generous father. There must be a change in their thinking not only about God, but about themselves. They must view themselves as sinners who are in need of God's saving mercy. So repentance involves this notion of metanoia, change of mind. And repentance also involves not only a change in thinking, but regret, remorse for sin, a weeping over one's sin. But with epistrepha, what the writer makes clear is that repentance not only involves a change in thinking about ourselves and about God, not even grief over sin, but in fact, repentance involves a change in behavior. That any true converted person is one who has changed their behavior and lifestyle. And this is what occurred in Thessalonica. The report had gone out about them that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were welcomed by the Thessalonians. And not only did they receive the gospel, but there was a change. You turned, he said, to God from idols. You see, no person is truly converted. However much they think about God, however much they say they love God, there's no true conversion unless a person is willing to leave his sins. There must be a change, a turning away from sin. And so the writer says, here is the first mark of conversion, this radical and permanent change in one's spiritual and moral direction. He says that they have turned to God from idols. And, you know, Scripture speaks of this turn. Peter, in 1 Peter 2.25, says, You were going astray like sheep, but now returned or turned unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul. But there's more that we can say about conversion, this turning to God. First of all, it is a decisive 
act. It is an action that takes place in the will of man. It's an act of man. Conversion is the human soul turning to God. There is, in fact, a conscious, a deliberate decision on the part of a sinner to turn to God. And turning from sin it would be seen as repentance, but turning to God would be seen as faith. And so these had turned to God. It was a decisive act. An act that was rooted in their own wills, where they, having heard the gospel, came to the decision that they must change their behavior and turn to God. Now the verb occurs, epistrepho occurs in the aorist tense. It speaks of a past completed act. It is not then that these Thessalonians took half measures. They weren't in the process of turning. They did not turn halfway. They did not take half measures. Moreover, they did not seem, seek to adopt God into their pantheon of God. They turned radically, decisively away from idols to God. That's conversion, a change in their behavior. But the movement then, this conversion was a decisive act. But it was a, not only a decisive act, it was a specific movement. Because it was a turning from many idols to the one God. It was a specific act because they turn to the living God. And we're going to say a little bit more about that. You see, they were in a society that was enamored with idols. When, when Paul went on to Athens, it was said that Paul said that, that Athens, at least Luke tells us that Athens was thick with idols. You couldn't find, it seems, space because of the shrines that they had there to idols. And the same might have been said of Thessalonica. There were various religious shrines and cults that were in Thessalonica. First of all, you found the ubiquitous imperial cult, the cult to Caesar, the worship of the emperor. There were Egyptian deities and goddesses that were there. So you had gods and goddesses like uh, Cabrias who was worshipped in Thessalonica. But perhaps the most prominent god, the patron god in Thessalonica was Dionysius or the Greek Bacchus, the god of wine, the god of fertility, the god of revelry. This was the god that was worshipped with orgies and sexual immorality and drinking and drunkenness and partying. This was the God that they worshipped. And we need to understand that the religious life of the first century was one that was wedded with everything that they did. Their business, if they were merchants, if they were tradesmen, all of these would have gods and goddesses that they worshipped. Everything they did in life was connected to the gods. But here... The Apostle Paul says, you turned to God from idols. This was not only a decisive act, conversion is not only decisive, a radical act, it is a specific act. They turn from idols. You see, when, 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 when a person is converted, there must be a change in behavior, and it must be a change from specific sins. In the case of the Thessalonians, Paul says they turned from idols, a specific sin from worshipping false gods. 
And you will find that even in the preaching of the apostles recorded by Luke in the book of Acts, that there was a call to men and women to abandon idols. We find in Lystra, when the apostle Paul and Barnabas went to Lystra, there Paul healed a man by the power of God that was working in him. And the inhabitants, the townsfolk of Lystra began to cry, the gods have come down to us, the gods have come down to us, and they wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas. Paul, they called Hermes and Barnabas Zeus. They wanted to worship, they thought the gods had come down. And the apostle Paul dissuaded them, turned them away from worshiping men. He says to them, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn, epistrepho, you should turn from these useless things. He's referring to the idols that they worship, to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all things that are in them. You see, conversion is a radical act because it is turning decisively from a past way of life to God but it is a specific act because it means abandoning specific sins. It is not that that the, the, the Thessalonians only abandoned idolatry. They abandoned all form of sin. Paul refers to idolatry representatively. So idolatry represents the entirety of a sinful life. And you'll find that epistrepho is also used to refer to abandoning other sins. You take, for example, what Paul says regarding the Lord Jesus Christ who commissioned him. He says in Acts chapter 26 verse 18 that he was sent to open their eyes, that is the eyes of the Gentiles, in order to turn them, to turn them, here it is, epistrepho, from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me that is in Jesus Christ. What am I arguing? I am arguing that true conversion requires then a decisive and permanent change in one's spiritual and moral direction. That this change is decisive, that this change is specific. It means abandoning all known sins. We cannot be Christians if we decide to hold on to some favorite sins, some little pet sins. We must abandon them all and turn to God. But conversion... What it is to be a true Christian requires a change in moral and spiritual direction must be seen not only as decisive and specific but as a divine initiative. Conversion is a divine initiative. I've said to you that in conversion it is a sinner who decides and turns to God. And it is true. But when the question is asked, where does he receive the power or the ability to turn? then we realize that it is not of himself. For just reading the verses preceding this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we will find that the writer begins by pointing their salvation to God, to their election in eternity past. In verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. What am I arguing? I'm arguing that, that conversion is preceded by God's pretemporal plan of election. That those who are converted in time are those whom God before in eternity has chosen, earmarked for salvation. These Thessalonians who were turned 
were previously in eternity past selected, chosen, handpicked by God to be his people. Knowing, brethren, beloved brethren, your election from God. But more can be said. It is by divine initiative. Not only were they elected in eternity past, but they were converted through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says to them, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. How were they converted? Yes, they turned to God. Yes, they abandoned idols and they turned to God in faith and in obedience. But they turned only because when the gospel came to them, it came with the power of the Holy Spirit who quickened them, who gave them spiritual life and enabled them to believe and enabled them to repent and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be converted? It means that there must be a decisive and permanent break with sin. A turning from all idolatry and all sin and a turning to God. But secondly, the passage before us teaches us that not only does conversion entail this radical change in behavior and in conduct, it also teaches us that conversion entails complete devotion to the service of the true and living God. Here we find the purpose of, their change, of the turning. For the text says that they themselves declared concerning us what manner of entry had concerning you and how you turned to God from idols. And here we find the purpose with the infinitive to serve the living and true God. That their conversion then was for a purpose. And their conversion was that they might serve the living and the true God. Now this term, to serve, is the cognate of another term that we know quite well. Doulas, which is simply slave. To serve means then simply to serve as a slave. And very often when in the New Testament Paul will say, that Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Well, it's doulos, he's using the, it literally means Paul, a slave of Christ. That is, they were converted for the purpose of being slaves of God. They were rescued from slavery to, idol, to idolatry, to idols, to become now slaves of God, to serve God. But the question that I think you're going to ask is, what does it mean to serve God? I want to suggest to you that to serve God in the first instance refer to a recognition that one is owned by God. That all of life and all of us are owned by God. And therefore, it's a life of commitment to Him. But serving God consists of two aspects. First of all, it consists of worship. It is interesting that in the Old Testament, the term to serve, avad, avad is a term that is used for manual labor, for work. But avad is also used to refer to worship. And you'll find instances. Let me give you a few illustrations of where to serve in the Old Testament refers to worship. Take, for example, Moses speaking to Israel in giving of the Decalogue in Exodus 20, verse 5, where he's telling them that they must not worship any of the angelic host. 
And, and he says to them, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. You see, this, this language of bowing down is a language of worship and serving. Well, they're saying the same thing. You shall not serve, you shall not worship the, the, heavenly, uh, the heavenly bodies. Exodus 20 verse 5. We find in Exodus 10 uh, verses 24 and 25 where Moses is before Pharaoh and he wants Pharaoh to release the Israelites that they should worship God. And after a series of plagues, Pharaoh gives consent for, for Moses to go and worship him. But look at what he says. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and says, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. You know, he wasn't sure that if he allowed Moses to go off with all the animals that they would come back. So he says, go and serve the Lord. Well, what does it mean to go and serve the Lord? Well, it means to go and worship the Lord. Moses responds and he says to him, you must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. He says, go serve the Lord. Moses says, no, we're not going with the animals because we need animals to sacrifice. You see, serve is in the context of worship. We think of Psalm 100, where in Psalm 100, the psalmist says in verse 2, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Surely the term serve is parallel to come before the Lord with singing. It's serve is referring then to worship. We find in the New Testament the same idea of serving God being used to refer to worship of God. In Luke chapter 4, verse 8, when Jesus was, tempt, was tested by the devil, and Satan says, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all these kingdoms, Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You see the language of worship and serve used here not only by the psalmist, but also by the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Thessalonians, they turned from idols. They turned to the living God. They abandoned their sinful ways. They turned in commitment to God, but it was for the purpose of serving. And a true converted person is one who serves the Lord primarily in worship. You see, all of life was created for reverence. You and I were created to be worshipers. When the question is asked, what is my role and my responsibility? What's my duty in life? Well, you are created to be a worshiper of God. That's our purpose. Man is made to worship God, to glorify God, and to enjoy Him forever. That's our calling. And it is precisely this area where we have fallen down. This is the nub of our sin, that instead of worshiping God, we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Therefore, the wrath of God is revealed against mankind. And Paul makes that clear in Romans 1.25. And so our duty in conversion is first of all to confess his name, to declare him, to praise him, to pray to him, to, to adore him, to give thanks to him, to sing songs of joy to him. Uh, our calling is to serve. Conversion is for the purpose of serving the Lord 
first and foremost in worship. But serving the Lord does not just involve worship. It is a much more embracive term which refers to the whole life lived in obedience to God. To serve God then is to use the entirety of our lives for the glory of God. And you see examples of what serving the Lord looked like in the context of the Thessalonian letter. We find, for instance, that serving the Lord involves the performance of good works. So in the beginning, in verses 3 and 4, the writer of 2 and 3 says, We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your work generated by faith, and your labor of love, the labor, the work you have done in love, and your patience in hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. So to serve God, how were they serving God in Thessalonica? Well, these new Christians, they were involved in good works, good works rooted in faith, depending upon the strength of God to serve him, and coming from love. They were doing things for one another. They were showing love and kindness because they were serving the Lord. Furthermore, we notice in the first chapter that serving the Lord involved bearing suffering for the Lord, imitating the Lord. You know, he says in verse 6, he says, and you became followers, but the term there in verse 6 is imitators. You became imitators of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. How were they serving God? Well, they were imitating Christ. They were imitating the Apostle Paul, and particularly in the area of bearing suffering for the name of Christ. So we see two ways in which they serve the Lord. One, by engaging in good works rooted in faith and in love, and by imitating the sufferings of our Lord and of the Apostle. But they serve the Lord by walking worthily of the Lord and pleasing Him. And so in, in, in verses 11 and 12 of the second chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, And you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you should walk worthy of God, who called you in His own kingdom and glory. They were serving God because they were being commanded by the Apostle Paul to walk worthy, to live a life that is fitting of God. They serve the Lord then by walking worthy and pleasing Him in a life of holiness. And that is what you find in chapter 4 in the more practical section of the epistle. Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord that you should more and more abound as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Serving God means a life of holiness, a life devoted to God. The rest of chapter 4 will go on to show that serving God involves not only holiness, but mutual love for one another, verses 9 and 10. We serve God by leading a quiet life, not being meddlesome and busybodies. Uh, in verse 11, he says, working with your own hands. We serve God in verse 12 by walking properly before outsiders. In chapter 5, we serve God by respecting those who he has appointed as leaders over us. And so there are a host of ways in which we serve God. So if I may to summarize then, the 
the, the purpose of conversion, we, we turn from idols, but we turn to God. But the purpose of turning to God is that we may serve God. One, by worship, and second, by living a life of obedience, a life worthy of God, a life pleasing to God. And that, therefore, involves all of our activities. Why? Why do we turn from our sins, from idolatry to God? Why do we serve him not only in worship, but living to please him? Because the Bible describes him here as the true and living God. He's the true and living God. These Thessalonians, they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And this language of God as living and true harks back to the prophet Jeremiah, who Jeremiah in chapter 10 verse 10 says, but the Lord is a true God. He is a living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. God is true and God is living. Some 30 times in the Old Testament, God is described as a living God. In the New Testament, the writer of Hebrew refers to him as such. He says, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14. He says, we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem in chapter 12. You see, God is a true God because he's a living God. The idols were dead. Yes, the, the idols, they were dead. They had behind them demonic powers as we read in 1 Corinthians 10. But in fact, idols were dead. But God is living. And because he's a living, he's only the true God. And therefore, there must be a wholehearted service of God. Because he alone is God. He alone is the living and he alone is the true God. But there's a further purpose, a second purpose for conversion. From turning from idols to turning to God. It is only for serving of God, but... Conversion, thirdly, results in the expectant waiting for the coming of the Son of God from heaven. So, Paul says that not only did they turn to God from idols for the purpose to serve the living and true God, but now he tells them in verse 10 the second purpose for their turning to God from idols. To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. What does a converted life look like? How do we identify someone who's converted? How do we know if we are converted? Well, there must be a turning from sin. There must be a deliberate decision to serve God. But there must be an expectant waiting for the coming of Christ. The genuinely converted people are those who are waiting for the coming of Christ. Yes, there was an issue regarding the resurrection in Thessalonica. It seems that some of them there were confused. Some of them were confused about the timing of the resurrection from the dead. They were confused about the nature of the resurrection. Some of them were worried that somehow when Christ comes back, the saints who had died, their relatives who had died, would not be part of the resurrection. There were issues, theological issues about the resurrection. But fundamentally, the Thessalonians, because they were transformed people, they live with a vibrant expectation of Christ who will come. 
the writer says four significant things about the Christ who they were waiting for. First of all, he makes it clear that the one for whom they are waiting is a son. You notice in verse 10, and to wait for his son. Sonship here refers to the fact that the one that they were waiting for is himself God. He shares the divine nature. He's the son of God. He's the Lord of history and the Lord of glory. He's the son of God. Secondly, we learn that the Son of God is located in heaven. They're waiting, he says, for his Son from heaven. That's the sphere where God reigns. And it means that because Christ is in heaven, the Son is in heaven, he's in the place of all dignity and all power and all reign. He's in the place of all rule. They're waiting for the Son from heaven. And then he says, most significantly, of Christ, whom he raised from the dead. That is, whom God the Father raised from the dead. I want you to understand that this is the most significant description of Jesus Christ here in verse 10. Because everything else hinges on this one fact. The reason then, put differently, the reason the Thessalonians had turned from their idols... The reason they turned to God, the reason that they devoted themselves to serving Christ is because Jesus was raised from the dead. That which made the signal difference is that they heard the glad news that Jesus Christ became man, that he died on the cross for sins, and that God raised him on the third day, and that they had a living Savior who was reigning in heaven, and they believed. And without the resurrection from the dead, there could be no conversion. What sets Christianity apart from every religion, from whatever period of time, is that we have a living Savior. A Savior who died and rose and now lives and will come again. And he describes him thirdly as the one whom God raised from the dead. He says furthermore, fourthly, that this one who is raised is Jesus Christ who delivers who delivers from the wrath to come. We read in the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians that Jesus Christ is coming. And he's coming for judgment for those who do not believe. He says he's coming with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Christ is coming and he's coming with great fury to judge and to condemn those who have not received him. But he's coming to deliver. The writer says that the one that they are waiting for, their hope is in Jesus whom God raised and the one who delivers from the wrath to come. He delivers from the wrath to come. Because he himself has paid for their sins and they themselves therefore will never face the judgment. What is conversion? It requires a turning to God in the past. It requires serving God in the present. And it requires anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ in the future. This leads then to just a few observations. We must make it our priority, all of us, 
to turn from sin to God without delay. There must be a turning. We cannot continue on the road that we are on and go to heaven unless we turn. We must abandon our idols. And not only must we realize that idols are not just man-made things, but they are heart issues. They are internal idols. We live in a world of many idols. We think of money and material things and technology. One of the biggest idols in our age is the yearning for perpetual youth. You know, the, the, the new church is now the gym. And the God we are worshiping is our bodies. I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not saying that you must not exercise your body. This is not my argument. But it's become a fad. We're bowing down ourselves. We think that the fitter we are, the longer we're going to live. We are desperate for this fountain of youth. But behind all of it is simply self. We live for self. Self reigns. We are governed by addictions. We cannot, if we are to be Christians, go to heaven unless we turn. We must today declare that I will break with my sins. You must make a choice between God and the world and sin. And you must choose the Lord. You must turn. You must turn away from sin and turn to God in faith. You must receive Jesus Christ as Lord. You must commit your life to him. And I want you to know that there is good news in turning away from sin and turning to Christ. Because there is forgiveness and mercy with Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of one of the most wicked persons in the entire scripture, a man called Manasseh. This man was so wicked, he did more than any other king in the Old Testament to displease God. Here's a man whom we are told covered Jerusalem with blood. He, he killed thousands of people. He constructed pagan shrines in the temple. More shockingly, egregiously, he sacrificed children to Moloch. His own children he gave as an, a burnt offering. He dabbled, engaged in witchcraft and necromancy, the dark arts. And God was so displeased with man, God caused the Assyrians to take him away to Babylon as a captive, put a hook in his mouth and took him off to Babylon. And there in Babylon, this very wicked man came to his senses. And he cried out, O oh God, and what do you think happened? The God of heaven heard him and forgave him and delivered him. And my argument simply is this, that when we turn to the Lord, there is forgiveness, full, complete forgiveness with God for those who genuinely seek him, who genuinely turn to him. Will you turn today? I read in the Old Testament where the Lord says, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? The Lord pleads with Israel, and he pleads with you, Will you die? Why won't you turn? There is mercy with his God. There is forgiveness in him. He says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool.
If you are not saved, your business today is to break off your sin right where you're seated. You don't need to walk an aisle, but you must where you are say, God, by your power and by your grace, I leave my sins and I trust in you. And I commit myself to following you. You'll be forgiven and you'll be saved at this very instance. And if you're a Christian and you have already turned, know that the Christian life is a continual turning. A continual turning away from sin. We can't just say we are Christians and we broke from our sins in the past. There must be a lifelong turning away. We are being attracted and pulled back by the world. But each day we must consciously choose to turn from sinful actions, sinful habits, sinful attitudes. A turning to God. A facing Him and living before Him. But not only must you turn to God without delay. You... If you are genuine and converted, must serve the Lord wholeheartedly. You must serve the Lord by giving yourself to him. We, we live in a world where we are told, you know, that the, our first obligation is to ourselves and then to our family. But our obligation is to God. And genuine and converted people are those who turn from idols and turn to God and they serve the true and living God. That is, we seek to please him. We become slaves of righteousness. Paul discusses this in Romans chapter 6. And he says that we are, we are enslaved to God in verse 22. There's an exchange of slavery. We are, ex- we are delivered from slavery to Satan and slavery to sin and slavery to idols. That we might become slaves of God. And you see, to be devoted to, be, to God, to be slaves of God, if you place the emphasis upon the genitive God, of God, you realize that it is a high and a glorious calling to serve the only true and living God. To say, I am a servant of God, is a badge of honor. Because you're serving the King of kings. You must give your life to praising him. You must dedicate your instrument, your bodies, as instruments of righteousness. So Paul could say to the Romans in chapter 6, he says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness or sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We are to give our lives to serving God. We must do good works for the kingdom of God. We must worship and serve him. But we must use all our talents and abilities. You know, if, if you are nursing, then you need to do that for God's glory. If you're driving the subway or you're working in an office, if you're, if you're lifting boxes in a, in, in, in a factory... If you are an assistant in a company, whatever your task may be, you're serving the Lord, you do that unto the Lord. You don't have to all be missionaries, but in all things, you must do that for the glory of Christ. And finally, my friends, we who are Christians must live in hope. In the ancient world, there was no notion of hope. When you read some of the ancient poems, they tell you, that there was no boat to deliver the dead from the underworld. No coachman to ride them out from the dark terrains of the netherworld. But we who are Christians have a hope. We recognize that 
whatever tomorrow brings, whether success or outward failure, disappointment or sickness or loss, we realize that this is not our world. This is not our home. We're merely passing through. These Thessalonians, they were delivered from their sins. They turned from idols. They turned to God. They served Him, and they were waiting. And you and I, who are Christians, must know that there is a day coming when Christ will come in glory, and we wait. We look forward because one day the heavens will open and Christ will come again and we shall see him and we shall be with him forever and forever. We wait. We wait in hope. You must understand that this is not our hope. But there is more to come and better to come. That we belong to a world which is above. And so we set our sights on things above and not on things of this world. We're waiting for Christ. May God help you, you who are Christians, to remember that this is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian, to turn from sin, to turn to God, to serve the true and living God, and to wait His Son from heaven. For God's sake, amen. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we praise you for the work of grace in our lives. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for changing us and making us new. And today we commit ourselves to our great responsibility as Christians to serve you with all that we have. Help us to, to recognize that you are chief and grant that you might be central in our lives, that all that we do, we do to please you, to glorify you, to serve you with all our hearts. Because to be in your service is the best service. It's the true service of liberation and freedom and joy to serve a gracious and kind Father as you are. And we pray, Lord, help us that we may re recognize that we should not be tied to this world, that we live loosely to this life, knowing that Jesus Christ will come again. So we commit then your people to you. We pray for those who know you, that they, they, their faith in you may be strengthened that the expectation of Christ might be greater. And for those who do not know thee, we pray, Lord, that you would grant them life so that they may turn, that they may serve, and that they may wait. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.